So the reading is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, page 1179 in the Church Bibles. Philippians 2, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Good morning. To know there's one warm body out there, Steve. Right, I want to begin by, um, forgive me for this, taking the Mary out of your Christmas. Just for a moment, our world is in a big, big mess. It's just impossible to avoid if you watch the news for a few seconds. There's just no way of, of avoiding this. We're confronted by the world's present madness in our 24-7 news feeds. It's like one giant billboard Blazing the message, the world is broken and fractured. We just see conflict everywhere. There is no peace. We, of course, see this writ large in our own parliament, in the Brexit debacle. It just looks like one big tangled mess of skirmish and counter-skirmish. Bewildering, to say the least. Across the channel, you see it in the yellow vest protests across the cities of France. Conflict, division. These are worrying times for our country, worrying times for Europe, and indeed for the world. I think what we're seeing are are growing divides with enormous potential for escalation, for an increase of a split, of a gulf. And this isn't just at the high level of world politics, we also see it at the grassroots level. We see it in what's called the culture war, the growing gulf between the left and the right, the elites and the populace. And this is giving rise to lots of outrage. Do you feel it everywhere? Outrage. It's spilling over. And I believe it's getting more and more extreme. Now, at this point, you're probably wondering if I'm a direct descendant of Ebenezer Scrooge. He's a fictional character, so I can't be. You know Scrooge. 
He's a guy who said, if I could work my will, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled in his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. Bah, humbug. That's not what I'm doing here. All I'm saying is that we live in a very divided world. That's a fact. And our world needs peace. And of course, peace is a key part of the Christmas message. It's at the core of what we call Christmas spirit. Going out and caroling, running mince pies round to the neighbor. Christmas spirit, making peace. Now, of course, as believers, we really can and do affirm that this is what Christmas is about. Christmas very much is about peace to the world through the life and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. You hear this theme in Luke 2. An angel appears to shepherds out in the fields to deliver a live news feed about what has just occurred. And the angel says, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. What's the news? Well, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. He is Messiah. He is God's appointed king. He is the Lord. And then we're told a great company of angels broke into song and they sang, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. And here you get this link between the birth of Jesus and peace on earth. So this is a season, this Christmas season, that reflects on peace to the world. Now this morning I want to pose what I think is a really important question for us as Christians, as believers. In in the light of the mess... In the light of all the division, what can we do as believers to contribute to peace on earth today? What can we do to make for a more peaceful world? It's something all of us should be concerned about. Well, my answer to the question might surprise you. And my answer is this. We will make for peace on earth by the quality of our relationships together. That'll make the crucial difference to the peace on earth. How we relate to each other as Christians. Now when you saw the question, other answers may have come shooting into your head. First, firstly, you might have thought, I hope you did, we have to get more active in sharing the gospel that brings peace. Paul calls it the gospel of peace. So surely getting that out there is going to make for the peace of the world. And to that we put our thumbs up. We need to share the gospel. Others might have thought, Christians need to get more active in the political sphere. We have to bring our salt and light there to make for a greater peace. And that has merit also. Others might plug for the cause of getting more involved in issues of social justice. We've got to get more involved as believers to make for the peace of the earth. And these are all good things. But I believe our best contribution to the peace of the world is built on something deeper and more profound. And it's this. We, the church of Jesus Christ, are to be the peace of the world. We're to be that peace. It's not about trying to make it. It's simply to be it in the the life of our church together. 
And that's where Paul is taking us in this famous passage we've just heard read for us, Philippians 2. And the fifth verse highlights his subject matter. This is what he's on about. He says, in your relationships with one another. That's what this whole passage is about. It's about our relationships with each other as Christians. Now, clearly, there's some kind of division in this church. So Paul is writing to bring them back to the place of peace, of union, of unity. Now, this text points to three things which will ensure the quality of our relationship that will make us be the peace of the world. And all of them are so important. So let's step through them. Firstly, to be the peace of the world, we have to live from the foundation of our essential unity. To be the peace of the world, we have to live from the foundation, the grounding of our essential unity. So Paul begins, if you have any encouragement from being united to Christ in union with him, if any comfort from his love, being loved by Christ, if any common sharing in the spirit, the life of the spirit, that's where he starts. It raises the question, what really pulls us together as a church family? What do we really have in common at a deep level? So here I am at the front, and I look out over you, and I think, what does this group have in common? You know, that's quite hard to say at one level. Is it that we all line up on the Myers-Briggs test, constituting a perfect team? Well, I have to say, my guess is that we're pretty disparate in temperament and outlook, and we might not choose each other for friends. That's not what binds us in common, ultimately. Is it that we all come from the same social strata? I think not. That's not what binds us here. There's diversity here also. Is it that we all share a common taste when it comes to things like the football team you support, the politics you follow, or the music you listen to? And again, I'd say probably not. I happen to know that I have the highest musical taste in this congregation because I'm a child of the 70s. That was the golden age of rock. Some of you came after that, and I can see some white hair here that says some of you came before it. I just happen to be in the flow of the golden age, so we're not bound together there either. What's the point I'm making? The point I'm making here is this. The deepest source of our unity together is not natural. It's not something that we can self-generate. And that's the wonder of the church. We can't pull it together ourselves. And that's why Paul pushes us here to the bedrock and foundation of our unity. And he shows us that it's a thoroughly supernatural unity, not accounted for by anything in the natural realm, that which belongs to atoms, the atomic level. So he summarizes this by by, by, um, listing what we do have in common at the deepest level, which are being united to Christ, sharing in the depth of his love, and sharing in the life of the Holy Spirit. So we, all of us who are believers here, are united to Jesus. 
Our life is rooted in this great reality. We share in him. He's the source of our life together. Then we, all of us here who are believers, also share this. We're loved by Jesus. He loves us more profoundly than we could ever know, and he has no favorites. We all share in the same love. He knows us individually, and we share in that. And then we, Paul says, all of us who are believers, share in the same life of the Holy Spirit. This is the divine life-activating power that unites us. And it's the bedrock of our life together. It pulls us together as one. So here, in this text, is a reminder of what our relationships are built on. These great supernatural realities. And you know, as our world increasingly tumbles into its conflict, its division, and its confusing confusion, we have to hold on to these central things. I believe this is a moment when the church in the West is going to get seriously sifted as this conflict grows. Many are going to be tempted to align themselves along the lines of the conflicts and divisions in the political sphere, in the culture wars. And this is the moment where we have to grasp the fundamentals of what it is to have a life together. To be linked through Christ, through Spirit, through the love, of the Holy, uh, through the love and, and work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that's what we build on. That's where it all begins. So that's where Paul begins. Secondly... To be the peace of the world, we have to express this supernatural unity practically in how we love and serve each other. So to be this peace, rooted in the supernatural fundamental realities, we have to practically express it to each other. So the end of verse 1, Paul talks about, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete, he says, by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. So it begins, as we've just seen, by rooting what binds us together to these supernatural realities, union with Christ in his love the life of the Spirit. Now, to call them supernatural is simply to affirm that they're unseen or they're invisible. And don't be mistaken here. Invisible doesn't mean imaginary or insubstantial. To be linked to Christ in union with him, to be in the life of the Spirit, is totally substantial and totally real. You just can't see it in the laboratory. That's why Lewis said they're super sensibles, but they're totally real. But the point is this. If our unity is rooted in these supernatural realities, they must inevitably spill over and become visible. And that's what happens when we practically live this out. And because our unity flows from these sources, there has to be something tangible and concrete And that's what Paul is focusing on in this next section of of the passage. I think he creates a bridge between between the invisible and the visible when he references tenderness and compassion. The tenderness of God to us 
each of us should be reflected between us. We're gentle with each other. We're not harsh. And God's compassion for us, which means he feels our pain, our burdens are something he fully understands. Well, we do that with each other in terms of how we relate to one another. And then he goes on, Paul, to call us to be like-minded. Make my joy complete by being like-minded. If we're working, truly working, from the source of our life in Christ and the Spirit, we are going to mind the same things. And that's going to ensure that we pull together as one. So there's a beautiful picture here of harmony, of, of peace. The real word for peace in the Bible is shalom. This deep integration. So we can enter each other's lives with our pain and our burdens. And we can be like-minded. So these great invisible realities that unite our common life become the basis for a practical outworking. Now what does this practical look like? Well, notice how Paul reflects it here. And I'm just going to let these phrases sit with you for a moment. They're they're so counterintuitive to how it works in society today. Paul says, beginning of verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Don't let selfish ambition motivate your practical engagement with others. So he's describing a network of relationships that's remarkably free of ego. We're to be a community, a fellowship, where it's not about me. Then he goes on. Rather in humility, value others above yourself. In humility, value others above yourself. He's describing a network of relationships where the value of the other is at a premium. We're able to see the the, the unbelievable worth and dignity of our brothers and sisters. We can see it in their faces. Then he says in verse 4, Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the other. Not self-interested, but other-centered in our interests. Constantly looking out for the good of each other as our first priority. That's how it's practically to work itself out. Now, tying it back to where I began, if this marks the quality of our relationships within this church, we will make a decisive contribution to the peace of the world. We will be the peace of the world. And that's because the way we live together will be so different, so counterintuitive to the norms of relationship in a fallen world. It'll stand out. Now, if you want to see evidence of this, you just have to go back to the early church, especially in the first three centuries. The early church in the first three centuries was a minority group within the pagan Roman Empire. It was a deeply divided empire. And historians, including non-Christian historians, are amazed at the influence of this tiny minority group how deeply it touched this grand, great civilization. It was disproportionate, the influence, the transformative effects, in terms of how small they were. 
And what's interesting is that they didn't take their influence by getting political power in it. That wasn't the secret. The influence of the early church flowed from the quality of how they lived together. That's where it began. And one of the early church fathers, a chap called Tertullian, he records this. He said, this, as I listen, is how Romans, including our antagonists, reflect on us. He said, but it is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See, they say, how they love one another. The early church was the peace of the world in terms of how they loved and served one another out of the the framework that Paul's offering here, out of this deeper unity. And that's an encouragement for us in this historical moment of great divide as we practically live at our unity, seeing other people's interests greater than our own, it'll make a difference. We will be the peace of the world. Now skipping to the third part of what Paul offers us in terms of how we can be the peace of the world. Thirdly, to be the peace of the world, we have to imitate Jesus. It's as simple as that at the end of the day. To be the peace of the world, we have to imitate Jesus. Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Imitate him, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It's interesting. The kind of practical demonstration that Paul's calling for here has already been enacted in history. That's his point. So Paul is using a a hymn-like or poetic form to tell this greatest of all stories. It's the true story of what Jesus has done in history. And Paul goes out of his way to emphasize that the kind of human person Jesus became was not like the imperial Caesar of the Roman Empire. The kind of person he became was a servant. Taking the very nature of a servant. Now that is radical. Because if you look through history, you see a very different kind of story played out time and time again. History records hundreds of stories of strong men who exerted themselves to make the world a better place. To bring so-called peace on earth. So it was a peace enforced by strong men who seized power to make the world more ordered, more stable, less divided. But here in the Jesus story, you don't have an uber-man narrative. The point is, Jesus didn't seize power. Why? Because he already had the power. 
He was already God with all the power that goes with being God. So what's so amazing about this story is that Jesus' greatness is exemplified in his humility. We live in a political environment where leaders, world leaders, love to assert how great they are. Whether they assert their Napoleonic credentials or whether, I'm not going to try and imitate it too good, whether they say that I will be the greatest jobs president that God ever created, I tell you that. Or I'll build a great wall and nobody builds better walls than me, believe me. That's not Jesus Christ. Strong arming it. His greatness, he could truly say, we can say, of our Savior. He is the greatest act, this is the greatest act of humility in all of human history. No hyperbole. And what the Jesus story highlights is that the way to the peace of the world is not through self-assertion. Self-assertion only ever creates more conflict and division. And that's what we're seeing today. The conflicts I started with. There's so much about self-assertion. Self-assertion of my rights. Of my identity. Have you heard the phrase identitarian politics? Asserting your identity. When Christ came into the world, he showed a different path. The path of humility. Where he put the interests of others, your interests, my interests, our eternal salvation, above his own interest. And that's why he didn't grasp his equality with God. He didn't use his position, his divine position, to his own advantage. There's no self-assertion in this story. He simply humbles himself. And the point Paul is driving home here is that he couldn't have stooped lower than he did. And of course, Christmas tells us the first stoop. He stooped to a manger. He took on human flesh born of a single mother, an unmarried woman, with no pedigree, he became a human person. God, in whatever form they were back then, wore nappies. That's the first stoop. But Paul says it goes even lower down in terms of his self-sacrificing humility. He became obedient to death even death on a cross. The cross in Roman civilization, the, the, the tool of execution for the low lives, the absolute lowest of the low. And he suffered on that cross for our sakes, to pay for our sins, to pay for our selfish ambition, to pay for our pride and our lack of humility. He went that low. That's the glory of what we celebrate. Here at Christmas, every day of the year. This is what Christ did on our behalf. But of course then, the story Paul tells takes this great turn. Because from this place, this lowest place of humility and self-sacrifice, Jesus is raised to the highest place. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's an irony here. It's it's, it's counterintuitive. Jesus already had the highest place as the eternal Son of God. That's where the story begins. So you think, Lord, just go seize the power. 
But no, Jesus, who had the highest place, humbled himself to the lowest place in order to be raised again to the highest place. And that is what Paul's saying, that is what we are to imitate. It's his whole point. Our life together as a church is to be lived in imitation of Jesus. Verse 5, in your relationships with each other, have the same mindset as this, the story Paul tells. Now, I have to tell you, I really do believe that living like this can have a deep impact on the world outside. To be the peace of the world through being united to Christ, living in the power of the Spirit. I believe in Cambridge. It could be that people see this and say, look how they love each other. There's something about the quality of it that you can't see anywhere else. And be drawn in because of that. And that's why I say it's the quality of our relationships with each other on the basis Paul lays out here, which plays the vital part for being the peace of the world. It's such a counterpoint to the fractured world we live in today. In a moment, we're going to be transitioning to the Lord's Supper. And there's nothing like the Lord's Supper to bring us all together to the central things that unite us sharing from the same life, the source of life, his body, his blood, the foundation of our relationships together. And uh, our prayer together as we do that is that we would know this deeper unity and from that be able to live the practical self-service that Paul calls us to. Let me pray. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for this most remarkable of all stories, the true story of your coming into this world, taking on human flesh and humbling yourself to the lowest, lowest of places by dying on the cross and taking our sins upon you. And we worship you as our Lord, the one who's raised to the highest place. And thank you that we reign with you from that place. And we ask that you would help us to love each other like this, and that the world around would be able to look at our love and say, see how they love each other. So we ask for that in the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.